I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. This week, we are belatedly kicking off a month of strangeness that we've dubbed for September, Acceptable in the 80s. That's our take on some films that may raise an eyebrow or give some pause if we saw them made today for the big screen. And what better and timely way to get things kicked off with the little scene war drama about the Soviet-Afghan conflict. That would be Kevin Reynolds' 1988 cult classic, The Beast. Join us! Now, full disclosure, while this week's film is something I was vaguely aware of as a title, it was something that I never had actually seen or had really even searched out for myself until around this time last year. As I am lucky enough to, at least on occasion, have some people who listen reach out to the podcast through email. Now, most of them who do are really trying to share their displeasure with something that I've said, or they're attempting to sell me something. But there are those rare cases where it's just folks that want to share a bit of good news or even share a suggestion for a film to cover. And I'm talking about films to cover that are within the wheelhouse, not those standard requests that I get where people ask, Why don't you cover Spider-Man Homecoming? It's my favorite. I get it. I like those movies too. But that's not a cult classic. In this case, around this time last year, I got a very thoughtful message from a guy named Nick who happens to be a really big fan of this film. And, what's more, he feels that it suffered from getting a real raw deal back when it was released. And so he's made it his mission to go around and try to raise awareness for the film and just share his love of it with others. Now, all of those things I just said, I can get behind for sure. That's what we strive to do here with this show. Normally, I approach recommendations from strangers with quite a large grain of salt, but in this case, I'm still one of those dinosaurs who gets Netflix discs mailed to his home, just to watch, quote, old stuff. So, honestly, I had nothing to lose when it came taking the time to sit down and give this week's film a spin. And thus, I got to have my mind blown. This is an amazing little war film. It's topical. It's insanely well written, and what's more, it's a real thoughtful meditation on a very complex subject. Hey, I'll just say it, it was flat out good. And not knowing how I was going to place it within the lineup of this year, I first and foremost thanked Nick just for introducing me to the film. I made sure to secure a copy for myself just to have on hand, and then I made some vague plans to either feature this film along with some sort of tank-related cinema, or I could plug it into a general war theme of a month, but... You know, we all know that September didn't shake out the way we initially thought here, at least on I Saw It on Linden Street. So, I was forced to call an audible for the month of September, and I feel that by opening it up with the subject of acceptable in the 80s, this is a great time now to give this film some proper love. Especially when you consider the time it came out and what it was up against. Not to mention the fact that Afghanistan is now a newly hot-button topic yet again in the popular consciousness. So, here we are, ready to give this film some love. But, in watching this film and getting to know its origins, a new story became available to me. And like so many of the films that we cover here, the story about just how this movie came to be made is almost wilder and more interesting than what we get to see on the screen here. And thus, we need to start from the start. So I pose this question to you. What happens when a little war sparks the interest of a playwright 
who just happens to be a little nuts. Well, allow me to explain. William Mostra Simone was born August 19, 1947. He was a young playwright, hailing from Trenton, New Jersey. He had standard education, grew up, had a good family life, and in 1979, he attended Rutgers, where he released his first play, which turned out to be an award-winning comedy drama that was known as The Wool Gatherer. He did that in 1979. And as he was performing that play in New York, he was trying to follow it up with something that he felt would be significant. In between rehearsals for The Wool Gatherer, he found himself walking around the city in 1980. And in passing by a newspaper box, he saw a picture on display of an Afghan tribal leader in the main article, who was giving an interview about how his people were making a stand against the Soviets, who had invaded Afghanistan in 1979 in an effort to help the Soviet-backed government eliminate the Mujahideen fighters who were engaged in a jihad against both the Soviet Union and the forces that called themselves then the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. Mostra Simone found himself intrigued by the article, and he focused on the quotes from the leader, noting that how they were going to fight to the last man, to the last bullet, and then he compared it to his understanding of our own American history, how the brave men followed leaders like George Washington in the past, and they sacrificed their all for the ideal that they held for their country. Afghanistan, for those of you who have been living under a rock for... I'll be kind and I'll just say the last 20 years, Afghanistan has had the distinction of being viewed as a rather unconquerable country. It's territory that can be briefly held, but it's never really allowed itself to have permanent, stable rule by any one occupying force. Depending on how far back you want to go and how dramatic you want to be inclined to be, the land has the distinction of being nicknamed the Graveyard of Empires. It's a land that many a ruler has tried unsuccessfully to claim. The Macedonians did it under Alexander, the Persians attempted, the Greeks, the Arabs, the Mongols, the Ottoman Turks, the British, the Russian, and then, adding to that list now, the United States. Now, it's a great moniker, but it's important to note that not all of those empires that I just named collapsed due to having wars with Afghanistan. Obviously, some existed, and some are still here today, but it's more of a way of just acknowledging in flowery language the old adage that many have tried and many have died. Still, the image of Afghans as dogged fighters who will give no quarter and will spill the blood of their enemies to the last, it's a notion that's been around for centuries, and with good reason, and they back it up. It's no wonder that the film we're seeing this week opens with the ending stanza of the poem The Young British Soldier by Kipling, which states, When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's plains, and the women are coming to cut up your remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains, and go to your god like a soldier. So, that's where we're starting from. It's this general idea of Afghanistan that was stuck with Mostra Simone. And he began to think about it more and more during his time working on The Wool Gatherer. He began to think of those images, and then he began to think about what it would be like to have a modern tank surrounded by a bunch of men fighting with spears and arrows. And after loosely sketching it out, he got what I will editorialize as a rather crazy idea in his head. He wanted to witness what it would be like to see a superpower fight men who seemingly hadn't changed their ways of life since the 12th century. He made it his mission. He was going to go over to Afghanistan and witness the struggle between the Soviets and the Mujahideen. The only problem is, he didn't have a clue as to how that would be accomplished. So what does he do? Well, Master Simone is a man after my own heart. He goes out to eat. He finds himself a little Middle Eastern restaurant in the Lower East Side of New York where they offer up 
Afghan food. It's called the Khyber Pass. He keeps coming back again and again, eating there over and over again, getting friendly with the staff and asking around, Hey, do you know how I can get into Afghanistan? Understandably, he's ignored or dismissed with comments like, You don't want to go there, or, Hey, get a travel agent. But eventually, after multiple times, one of the wait staff actually sits down with him and tells him how he can go about doing it. So first and foremost, hey, white guy in a Middle Eastern restaurant asking dumb questions loudly, the staff is starting to think that you're some sort of government agent sniffing around, so they don't want to talk to you. Mostra Simone had to explain that he's a playwright, and he's trying to write a story about the Afghan war, but he wants to go and see it for himself before he starts writing it. The waitstaff actually take a few members to go and see his current play just to confirm he is who he says he is. And when they realize that he's indeed serious and sincere, they decide to help him tell the story of their countrymen because they didn't feel that the newly appointed Reagan administration was handling the Soviet crisis to their liking. Mostra Simone was going to go to Pakistan. Specifically, he was told that he needed to go to the city of Rawalpindi and stay there at the Intercontinental Hotel. If he did that, then their people would come to get you. Now, how long the writer had to wait? Unsure is what the waitstaff would tell him. He just has to go there, and once he's there, somebody will come and take him. Moster Simone was not really thrilled with that answer, and he tried to put the idea out of his mind. And he did, until about 1981. He just couldn't get it out of his head. And so, against all conventional good sense, he took the money he had, $5,000. It was his savings, and he ended up booking himself round-trip fare to Pakistan, heading to the hotel that he had been instructed to go to. As promised, after a few days, the contact from the restaurant came, and he ended up putting the American on a train to the city of Peshawar, the first stop in a long trip. You see, he had to gain permission from a local warlord of the region just to get into Afghanistan, because they were going to be traveling through all of his territory, and they need his protection to do so. Also, again, strange American writer asking to be smuggled into a war? That sounds fishy. And yet meet with the warlord he did. The gentleman he sat down with was Golbutin Hekmatari. Hekmatari started out studying engineering as a student in Kabul. But that came to a rather quick end when he found himself falling in with a bunch of radicalized colleagues and he attempted to kill a fellow student who himself would go on to become a politician in Afghanistan, one named Ahmad Shah Musaud. But that whole assassination attempt was thwarted. During the late 1970s, he set himself up to be a CIA and British-funded warlord who would go on to lead the Mujahideen of the time to help supply weapons to the Afghan resistance against the Soviets. It was during this time that he also padded his own pockets, and he made a name for himself by attacking other Afghan tribal leaders in the Mujahideen who were, at least on paper, his comrades, but in reality had always been his rivals going forward, and he did this to consolidate his power. He took part in the Afghan Civil War in the mid-1990s, and unable to agree with his fellow warlords on just who would run the newly formed Islamic State of Afghanistan, he was responsible for targeting civilians with attacks on its own capital. He would go on to seize control and serve as the Prime Minister of Afghanistan from 1993 to 1994 before he was forced to flee Kabul when the Taliban took over as the new government. He spent almost two decades in hiding, both in Iran and then again in Pakistan, before he was pardoned by the now ex-government of Afghanistan, and he tried unsuccessfully to run for president there. He is currently seated as part of the Council of Reconciliation, a group of government and political leaders who are trying to successfully transition from the current state of Afghanistan as they switch control back to the Taliban once again. For his part, we are not talking about a nice guy here. He is and was a hardline Islamist ideology supporter. 
and he based his same rhetoric around what was used by the Ayatollah Khomeini during the Iranian Revolution. He's been known to have scores of human rights violations against him, which includes murders and terrorist acts, and he would proudly brag, even in the early 80s, that he personally instructed his men to carry acid on their persons to be used to throw in the faces of uncovered women in the markets. This is not a good man. But, lucky for Mostra Simone, Heked Matari took a shine to him, and he liked talking politics and culture with the American. And so, he got the warlord's blessing to continue on with his journey to go, quote, visit the war. He ended up assigning two bodyguards to sneak him over the border at night. And all of this was done during a massive firefight that was being exchanged between warring factions of Soviets and Mujahideen fighters. In the morning, the first thing that Mastra Simone gets to see is the aftermath of what they had slipped past in the darkness. A Russian tank column had been ambushed by Mujahideen fighters, destroying both the first and the last tank, bottlenecking the entire column as it made its way through a narrow road pass. The Soviets were completely disabled, and 11 prisoners had been captured. Mostra Simon was allowed by his guards to sit down and interview the Russians. He was rather surprised to find out just how young they were. They were a bunch of these tow-headed kids who had just been there because, hey, it was their job. They had been sent. And as he's talking to them, he began to panic. As he asked his interpreter, what's exactly going to happen to these Soviets once he's done talking to them? To which his translator informed him that they were to be killed. Under the rules of jihad, quoting to the playwright from the Quran, that you attack not your enemy, but if your enemy attacks you, you strike off his head. Mostra Simone tried to extract himself from the interview, hoping that he didn't have to have Russians deaths on his conscience, and that was made even harder when one of the Russians he was talking to began to realize that this chat might be the only thing that would save them. And for his efforts to engage with the American, he ended up getting clubbed with a rifle butt. Angry that he would not engage with the Soviets any further, his handlers ended up executing the prisoners in front of the author to his horror. His first day in country started out with a massacre. One where he saw village women stripping the bodies of the men in the field. Hey, see that Kipling poem. And see that trophies were taken from the battle site. The American would travel on next through the Hindu Kush mountains, joining up with a convoy of pack mules that were making their way to the next village, loaded up with weapons and supplies for the Mwajadim fighters to use. The guards from the warward, Hekmatayar, left Mastra Simone in the care of local Mwajadim fighters and the trek proved to be brutal for the tourist. He was just not prepared for the type of scaling that he would have to do through the mountains and all of the rough terrain. Worse, as he continued on through country, he began to get physically ill, something that he couldn't place. He would later learn that he was suffering from drinking the local water. His system was unable to cope with the local flora and fauna that was found in the melted snow that they were drinking. By the third day into his mountain trek, Mastra Simone woke up and found that he was too weak and too ill to even stand. His convoy members couldn't carry him on the pack mules. They were already loaded up with weapons and supplies. The men conferred with him and told him that if it was Allah's will that he would survive, then he will survive. But they were going to leave him here on the side of the mountain. And when they returned in a week or two, they would either find what was left of him or what became of him. He was also left an antique revolver with two bullets, something that the author would look back on in an interview with author Matthew Galt as an act of mercy. As he opined, I guess the second bullet was for compassion, just in case I fucked up the first shot. Mastro Simone was left without food and water. Thus he had to drag himself up the slope where he would find an alcove in the rock wall to help shelter him from the Afghan wind. And then he helped out his situation by heaping rocks up that would be used to create a barrier around himself. Exhausted, he collapsed 
and woke the next day to see a small boy standing over him, as well as a few armed men. It was a panicking moment. He's a white guy in a strange country who doesn't speak the language, and he has to try his best now to convey that he is not a Russian soldier. He ended up being taken back to the village where he was lucky enough to meet with a doctor there, a man who had had some Western education by way of England, who was also able to speak English, and thus it was allowed him to explain himself. The doctor ended up explaining to him later what was causing his illness, and he ended up setting the offer on the mend. He ended up spending the next week and some change just hanging around the village, getting better, talking with the people, learning about their culture and gaining his strength back. Touched by their hospitality and the selflessness that they showed for their guest, the author began to write during his recuperation. Eventually, his contacts from before came back, and were most pleased to find that he was alive and doing well, although it would take him a few more days to build up strength to start the journey back over the border to Pakistan. Upon returning to the States, he had already completed the first draft of his new crafted play, something he was calling Nanawate. It was based on the Pashtawali custom that Mostra Simone himself was able to experience, Nanawate. It was a request for sanctuary and help that cannot be refused by the host being asked, even if the person asking said plea is a mortal enemy. You see, in Pashtun culture, they are obligated to help those who ask. He then set his story around the survivor of a Russian tank crew, a driver who is captured and seeks aid from his Mwajadeen enemies, and he gets to learn about them and they from him in the process. Mostra Simon goes home, and he tightens up the draft, and he starts the process of making it his next play. It does open in Los Angeles, where it catches the eye of one director, Kevin Reynolds, who himself is just a young kid finishing working up on a movie that we'll talk about actually in a few weeks, Red Dawn, with John Milius. And he had just completed his first own solo feature, the movie Fandango. Now, Reynolds loved the play itself, and he started to reach out to Mastro Simone to see if he would be willing to let him adapt the play for the big screen. Mastro Simone, for his part, was thrilled, and he began to work on adapting his play for the big screen, creating a new screenplay from his original copy. Reynolds ended up partnering with Columbia Pictures, who agreed to fund the movie, budgeting $8 million for the project. Now, showing off its 80s bona fides, they began to cast some great talent here. This marks the third professional outing for a young Jason Patrick. He was coming in hot off of the one-two punch that was Solar Babies in 1986 and The Lost Boys in 1987. He was tasked with playing our main character, the thoughtful tank driver Konstantin Kovarchenko. You have a young Stephen Baldwin here, long before he got fame with the usual suspects and before he became a very vocal born-again Christian on various talk shows. No, he shows up here appearing as Antoli Golikov, friend and comrade to Kovarchenko. Likewise, character actor Don Harvey shows up here, who is coming off of being in Brian De Palma's The Untouchables the year prior. He's here as Kaminsky, the unsure soldier under the commander's sway. And for our, quote, main villain, we have Daskal. Veteran character actor George Zunza was cast to play the unhinged tank commander, who is obsessed with his charge of bringing the fight to the Afghanis. You may remember him from the classic movies uh, 1975's The Happy Hooker with Lynn Redgrave, or the bigger one, his more poignant portrayal as John, the sensitive bartender, and it's whose place the characters always hang out when when they're not working at the steel mill or hunting in 1978's brilliant movie, The Deer Hunter. You then have Eric Avari, who, if you see him, you may remember him from starring as the great, great character actor who shows up in so many of the Roland Emmerich Dean Delvin joints. He's there in Stargate, he's there in Independence Day, and then later he shows up in Stephen Summers' 1999 The Mummy. 
He has a great turn here, starring as Samad. He's the Afghani interpreter who's been assigned to the tank crew to help be their liaison with various groups that they encounter, and whose motives are suspect by Daskal. Last but not least, you have a young Stephen Bauer here, still hot off of having roles in Scarface, Running Scared, and Wildfire. He shows up here playing the complex role of Taj, the young Pashtun man who finds himself suddenly leading his clan after Daskal attacks his village and murders his family. Now, the spring of 1987 found Reynolds filming on location in Israel, trying to have that stand in for Afghanistan. Columbia contracted the company Warriors Incorporated, which was founded by retired Marine Corps Captain Dale Dye. You should totally look up Dale Dye. The man is a legend, and you can remember seeing him in movies like Outbreak, or hey, he's in the original miniseries Band of Brothers. He's fantastic. Dye was put in charge of securing an actual tank to use for production, and unable to secure one by way of wheeling and dealing, he ended up making a few side deals with some Israeli defense officers who had captured a former T-55 Soviet tank from the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and that was used as the, quote, beast in question for this film. For his part, Dai was given a cameo in the film, playing a helicopter chief who comes to the aid of stranded tankers. Post-production, though, Reynolds experienced a real snag. Columbia was undergoing a regime change. It was the fallout that happened when Columbia Pictures and TriStar merged in 1987. And while this film was already in the can, the new management was already determined to devalue this Afghanistan war picture to focus on one that they felt would be more commercially viable, noting that the public were only going to be interested in something like this on a limited basis. So you might as well go with the big-budget film, right? Thus, the decision was made to promote Rambo 3, to show that Stallone's time on screen fighting the Soviets with the help of the Mujahideen was going to be the real draw. And thus, Rambo 3 kicked off the summer of 88, heavily promoted. What's more, it ended up making a mint at the box office as well, pulling in $189 million in sales. For their part, this film ended up being retitled. Initially, Nanawate was called the Beast of War, but now, to differentiate it further, it had just simply been titled The Beast, which would lead to further confusion as to what people were potentially walking into when they found it to be screened. Now, I could get into some more, but geez, you folks have been incredibly patient up until this point, so what do you say, I'll stop my yakking, and we can get to that trailer. How's about it? efficient, brutally effective piece of work. The most unusual and absorbing war picture since Das Boot. The performances are remarkable, says Jeffrey Lyons of Sneak Previews. of Platoon has been more bold and unflinching in showing the explosive nightmares of combat, the Christian Science Monitor. Ah! This is top-notch, says the Los Angeles Daily News. The war made him a soldier. Nineteen eighty one, Afghanistan. 
It's the second year of the Russian invasion. A column of Russian tanks rolls through a sleepy Pashtun village that has been accused of harboring and supplying Mwajadin fighters, shelling them from a distance before driving through and mopping up. A few of the village men do attempt to fire back, but they are killed, and while local women will throw rocks at the tanks, they're only gassed. The wells are poisoned, the homes are burned, and the livestock end up being slaughtered, while remaining buildings get destroyed with Russian ordnance. Finished, the column orders its members to regroup and leave. Tank crew G5447, though, helmed by Commander Daskal, as played by George Zunza, gets waylaid when one of its members, driver Konstantin Kovarchenko, as played by Pat Jason Patrick, is attacked by a local Pashtun man, Shazaman, as played by Roberto Polak. He ends up being saved by his fellow tanker, Kaminsky, as played by Don Harvey. Daskal takes cruel delight in punishing the man, and he orders his crew to place Shazaman under the front treads of the tank, both in an effort to extract information out of him and just to kill him. Their assigned translator, Samad, as played by Eric Avari, attempts to diffuse the situation between the villagers who are watching and tries to translate what the man is saying. They get to witness Daskal ordering the man's death and his subsequent crushing. The ordeal separates the crew from the rest of the column, though, and as they approach a blind fork in the valley road, they take the wrong way unable to locate the main column due to their radio being damaged from the attack that the Pashtun left on them. Instead of leaving the valley, they end up driving further into enemy territory, isolated and alone. Back at the village, the son of the local Khan arrives, Taj, as played by Stephen Bauer, with his uncle Akbar, as played by Kabir Bedi. They arrive to find their loved ones slaughtered and the survivors mourning the destruction. Riders from another tribe, led by Mustafa, played by Chaim Jaffi, arrive and warn that one of the tanks that caused all of this destruction has been cut off and is lost in the local valley of the Jackals. They have an opportunity to take their revenge. Taj explains that his older brother is the Khan now, as their father was murdered in the attack, only to learn that it was Shazaman who was crushed under the tank treads, leaving him in charge of his people now. Convinced to use captured Russian rocket-propelled grenades against the tank, they set out to avenge their people. The tank crew, lost, begins to feel the first hint of anger from the commander, as he cannot orient himself out of the valley, with his radio broken and his maps burned. He begins to take his frustrations out on Samad, even though the man is only trying to assist him. Sir? Where the hell are we? I don't know, sir. How do we get to the Kandahar Road? I'm not sure, sir. The Molotov took our radio out. We get reception, but no transmission, sir. Those hills must be here. Kandahar Road must be on the other side of those hills, right? I'm not sure, sir. The garrison grid coordinates are 31 degrees latitude. Samad, you're relieved of your post. Give the logbook to Kovarchenko. For what reason, sir? Incompetence. Record it, Kovarchenko. Then what is my function, sir? None. Give yourself a battlefield commendation, Kovarchenko. For what, sir? Trying to save those tankers. Check this side out, Kaminsky. To your post. Just say yes, sir, and keep out of his way. Okay. While the Soviets are taking stock, the Mwajadim fighters on the ridge, led by Taj, end up opening fire on the tank crew, forcing all hands inside to shelter, except for Daskal, who stands with field glasses and ends up directing the rest of the group on where to concentrate their return fire. During the battle, neither side does really any damage to the other, with Mustafa unable to properly use the RPG. The tank doesn't end up really killing any of the fighters, but they're driven off further into the valley. The Mwajadim track the tank to a watering hole, but 
Before he can stop his own men, Taj is horrified to discover that it's been poisoned with cyanide by Daskal, and he loses one of his comrades in the process. Daskal, on his part, blames Samad for not poisoning more of the men. He accuses the man of leaving the canister out in the open to be discovered. The tank crew prepares a fragmentation round to fire into the group of Mwajadid, but the shell itself is a misfire, and that causes all the men in the tank to flee for safety. As Samad handled the shell last, giving it to Golikov, as played by Stephen Baldwin, it is him that Duskal blames for such things as sabotage. But Kovarchenko speaks up. He notes, hey, one out of every 100 shells does this. He's going to go, he'll clear the round from the tube, and placate all of the crew's nerves. Duskal goes with him, and as they clear the shell out of the tube, he takes his driver to task for speaking up on behalf of their interpreter. Just tell me one thing, Kovarchenko. Why do you stick up for the Afghan? Because he's doing the best he can, sir. That's what worries me. You got what it takes, Kovachenko. I've seen it. Just keep your head on straight. That night in the desert, Samad and Kovarchenko talk about the Pashtun culture and the views of the men that they are up against, with the interpreter teaching the young driver about the concept of their code of honor, the Pashtuwali, specifically focusing on extending mercy to their sworn enemies as long as they evoke the request of Nanawatai. They will be protected and cared for. So it is called Pashtunwali. It's the code of honor. Pashtunwali. Mm. What are you doing? Now, three obligations. First, milmastia, hospitality. Milmastia. Second, badal, revenge. Badal. Third, nanawate, the obligation to give um, sanctuary to all those who ask. To all, even the enemy. Oh. What if I kill your brother and you come for Badal, revenge, and I ask for uh, Nanawali? Then I would be obligated to feed, clothe, and protect you. It's incredibly civilized. What is it, Nanawali? Nana, what they? Nana, what they? Bread? Smells like you've been chewing on fucking buffalo shit. When we get back, you got transferred out of the tank. I will win this respect in time. Listen to me. When the old man gets on your back, there's no way to shake him off. My dear Constantine. I regard this abuse as the price I must pay to learn. I love Afghanistan, but we are a flea in the tail of a bear. We must join the 20th century. When Afghans accept that, I will be there, knowing technology and Russian. So you're a patriot? Yes. Well, so is that rebel. He wanted to keep things the way they've always been. I wish I believed in something that much. I envy him. Then why did you crush him? Because I had no choice. You always have a choice. The crew's respite is interrupted by yet another attack from the Mwajadeen, hitting the tank with small arms fire and grenades. The crew is barely able to make it out, and they suffer further damage to the tank. And adding insult to injury, they abandoned their food and water supplies when they were open-fired upon. Daskal sends Samad out to survey the damage, and Kovarchenko defies a direct order from his supervisor to murder the man with the tank's gun, causing further tension between the two that the entire crew get to feel. The next morning, as the crew collects water, Daskal unexpectedly executes Samad as he complies with an order to check for the depth of the water that they are at to see if the tank will go through. Kovarchenko flies into a rage against the commander, and the two of them argue over who will actually be punished for this. The tank breaks down, and they continue on. 
Descal, needing both to get rid of Kovarchenko and to cover his tracks, accuses Kovarchenko of mutiny when the driver explains all the reasons why the tank won't make it. Descal orders his men to bind Kovarchenko to a rock alive, and then they place a grenade underneath his head, leaving him as a living booby trap for the pursuing Mwajadin. Hours pass, and Kovarchenko is surrounded by wild dogs, but he manages to knock the grenade placed under his head off the rock, detonating it, sparing himself, and scaring off his would-be attackers. He is eventually found by Taj and the Mwajadin members, and while the women of the party want to kill him outright, it's Kovarchenko who pleads with Taj, requesting Nanawate causing the Khan to have massive distress, as his companions want him to ignore tradition and not honor their code of conduct. Against his own wishes, though, Taj does save Kovarchenko and brings him into the protection of the group. Kovarchenko ends up bonding, though, with his Majadin members. He helps them fix the malfunctioning RPG they have. He ends up joining them on their quest to stop the tank, with Kovarchenko hoping to save Goldikov and even Kaminsky from Daskal's next crazy outburst. The tank crew this entire time has broken down, just as Kovarchenko had warned that they would, and they are now stuck, at least until a passing Soviet helicopter crew spots them and offers them help. In spite of protests from the remaining men, Descal just takes on more fuel and hardware to repair the tank, and he commences to continue to drive out. His goal is to make it to the Kandahar Road on his own in the tank. They later drive past the same watering hole that they had poisoned at the beginning of the film, and they note now that it's the Russian helicopter boys who had just helped them. They're now dead from drinking the water. A final confrontation ends up taking place between the Mwajadim fighters, though, and Daskal's crew, where Kovarchenko is able to disable the tank's main gun with the RPG, and the fighters are able to block in the tank with a landslide caused by found ordnance. Daskal wants the tankers to kill themselves rather than be captured, but the remaining men end up wrestling grenades away from the commander, and they exit to find Kovarchenko waiting for them. He requests Taj grant them all Numanwati as well. Kovarchenko gets to have the final word with his former commander. Sorry, sir. Not much of war. No Stalingrad. How is it that we're the Nazis this time? How is that? I'm trying to be a good soldier. Unwilling to submit, Daskal runs off into the desert, pursued by women of the village, armed with rocks and knives. They return with his bloody uniform to Taj's camp. Kovarchenko is gifted a Giselle musket from Taj as a sign of both thanks and respect, and he and the remaining Soviet tankers are airlifted by their resupply chopper, while the Mwajadin actually wave goodbye. Credits roll. Jeez, where do we even begin? Well, aside from me stating, holy shit, does this film have complex undertones? This would be an awkward film to make and try to promote if you made it today, let alone when it was being made by Reynolds in the 80s. The Soviets are dealing with complications as an invading force, trying to take on local guerrilla fighters? I mean, American art at the time was still drawing parallels and trying to make sense of its own failed adventurism in Vietnam. And with a tank crew of blonde Russians who are all speaking English, it's really not hard to see how one is standing in for the other. Couple that with the notion that this is a rather awful film for diehard fans of clear-cut war films in general. I mean, you really don't have good guys versus bad guys. 
All parties involved, even Dascal, have motivations that can at least be rationalized to govern their behavior, making this a really hard movie for viewers who want a clear-cut winner and loser in their story. That's not to say that Dascal isn't unhinged as a character. He completely is, and he's superbly played by Zunza here, for the record. But in an overly zealous way, you could at least trace his motivation back to being a survivor from World War II. He's a true believer. He has been sent by his country to fight the enemy, and that's exactly what he's going to do. The crew he commands, they're of a younger generation. They're not able to follow his flawed but contextually understandable fanaticism, which ends up furthering ratcheting up the hardline view of them or us that Duskal holds. He's defending the Soviet Union at all costs, and he's going to destroy anyone who would stand in the way of Soviet control. The USSR saved him in his youth, and its ideals are bigger than him or the rest of the men that are under his command. Therefore, he will complete his mission or die trying, and he holds everyone that he encounters to that same level of extreme devotion. And not to harken back to a darker time over the last two decades, but the philosophy boils down to a very simplistic one. If you're not with me, then you're against me. If you were commander, you would have done the same thing. But Samad was waiting for his chance to deliver this tank to the enemy. I was too smart for him. And I didn't study philosophy. Uh, I read your dossier, Mr. Intellectual. Who would you say uh, your record says about that? That I think for myself. You think for yourself. When I was eight years old, defending Stalingrad, I didn't think for myself. When the motherland asked for our lives, we gave. My father didn't think of himself, he gave. My mother didn't think of herself, she gave. My brother didn't think of himself, he gave. My comrades tied a rope around my waist and, and lowered me on top of Nazi tanks. I stuffed Molotovs under, under turret and cannon and, and they pulled me up again. Eight years old. They called me tank boy. I took a lot of Nazi tanks. And over the years, I've learned to smell a traitor. As we see time and time again, it's the rigid thinking and the inability to want to understand that is what leads to mounting unintended consequences that only get worse and worse as time goes on. Case in point, the cyanide scene. Dascal is so short-sighted. Even when his crew expresses concern about poisoning the local watering hole, with the simple logic, hey, we don't know who's going to be drinking from this. They may not be our enemy. Dascal does it anyway. And later we get to see it's that Russian helicopter crew who offers the tankers assistance. It's them. They're the ones who get killed by Dascal's treachery, not the Mwajadeen. To the rest of the crew, particularly for Kovarchenko, being here, at best, it's a job. And in his case, it's more of a punishment, and it's just the lesser of two evils over prison. It's not much better to work from. And while the youthful crew members, they understand they're fighting the Mwajadim, and they do indeed engage with them, they still see the locals as people, not different from them, worthy of empathy and respect, realizing that there are things that can still be learned from the other. It's not black and white, which makes their own reticence to inflict suffering upon the populace very relatable. These are women and children. They're not fighting them. Nor are these village elders. So harming them will not make a difference to actually help Soviet victory, but what it will do is turn the very people they're trying to win over against them. Likewise, Samad is such an interesting character here in his own right. The way Eric Avari plays him, you get the real sense that he views Soviets as the potential tool for positive change to Afghanistan. Yeah, 
Soviets are an invading force, but they're one that could help this country modernize and join the rest of the world in the 20th century. And that's why he's willing to help the Soviets in their efforts. He wants to work to be their translator and their cultural guide because he's trying to straddle two worlds at once. The one of his cultural people, and the one of his part as a modern member of the Soviet Union that he actually admires. And for all his efforts, both to educate himself and to act as a bridge between these two separate spheres, unfortunately he is rewarded by being murdered by Daskal, a man who cannot fathom Samad's otherness, even though the other crew members have openly bonded with him. Why did that rebel we ran over laugh at me? He wasn't laughing at you, he was happy. Such men believe if they die in a holy war, they will go to paradise. You believe that? After university, I'm not sure what I believe. I personally find this movie fascinating. Because you have a group of men coming together here who are strangers in a strange land, looking to try and engage with an enemy that they don't really know or even understand. And in spite of all of this, the real true enemy here for them is their own tank commander. A man who is so unable to adapt his way of thinking that he will willingly destroy himself and anybody else to hold to his principles. The irony here is that, at the end of all things, when Taj is willing to grant all members of the tank crew sanctuary, based just upon the help that Kovarchenko gave them and the mutual respect that he's developed from his enemies, it's Deskal who refuses. And in that refusal, he encounters a type of zealotry that's just as extreme as his own the type that's held by the local Afghan women, who would rather murder this man with their knives and rocks than let him walk away unscathed. Likewise, I must say, the local Pashtun men are equally complex as characters. Taj is this outlier. He's the younger son of the ruling Khan, who clearly has some different views than his father or older brother on how they should adapt their ways. And he's caught struggling against the tenets of blind tradition, trying to move past the tribal infighting that plagues their people. But the harsh reality and these traditions clash when he finds that his family has been killed in a single horrifying moment, and he is elevated to lead his people against the tank crew who has destroyed his own home and damaged his own life. He faces some of the same questions that both Kovarchenko and Samad were all struggling with. How do you balance progress with tradition, especially in the face of such a conflict, with enemies who don't understand each other? He makes it a point to use the captured rocket-propelled grenade against the rogue tank lost in the valley, but he finds a surprising comrade and a friend when he discovers the abandoned Kovarchenko and he holds to his traditional custom of granting this man sanctuary. Thus, he learns how he can combat Daskal, and for his hospitality and humanity, Kovarchenko ends up fixing the weapons that they can use against the tank. For his part as Taj, Stephen Bauer is indeed great here. Although I have to admit, watching this film now, at least through the lens of our modern understanding, the choice of his casting does give me pause. Just partly because it seems to be rather tone-deaf the way Hollywood would swap a darker, quote, ethnic-looking actor, in this case a Cuban-American man, to sub in for a Middle Eastern gentleman. Don't get me wrong, this is far better than something the golden age of Hollywood would have thrown up, like when you have John Wayne putting on yellow face to play Genghis Khan, or if you ignore the fact that your lead is clearly European, thinking some of the same lines that we would see when you look at The Wind and the Lion, where you have Sean Connery walking around with a tan, but not losing his accent and telling people the entire time he's a Berber. I mean, really, Connery would go on and do that even into the 80s. Greetings. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramians, Chief Metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. And I'm at your service. Sure you are, Sean. Sure you are. But regardless, it still seems to be a bit strange to take in when you have other actors on screen here who are Middle Eastern themselves. 
I get it, you need to have a name, and while Bauer wasn't huge at the time, he was respectable and known, but it does seem to smack of some cultural appropriation that I think a film made nowadays would avoid. I can hear you now, though. Chris, this film sounds fascinating. Plus, you're so smart, handsome, and worldly for laying it out in such an interesting way. Please, tell us, how was the film received? <laughs> well, herein lies the problem. It wasn't. Now, if you recall, I said Columbia wanted folks to go out and see their big budget release of Rambo 3. That was the film they were supposed to use to get all of their exciting Afghanistan conflict fill of, full of Stallone, exploding arrows, and all kinds of over-the-top mayhem. The studio purposely buried the beast, kneecapping it, giving it a September release date, and holding only to its contractually obligated screening times to have it only show in New York City and in Los Angeles proper. Thus, it was only shown in two theaters nationwide, crowded out by a host of other films that made their debut that same month, which included Tracks, The Vampire's Kiss, Messenger of Death, Miles from Home, Flesh-Eating Mothers, Drowning by Numbers, Earth Girls are Easy, Running on Empty, and Moon over Parador. It quickly got lost in the shuffle. Since it was only available to limited markets, reviews also did not come flooding in. And those that came out though, I must say, the bad ones were middling at worst, but for the most part, they were overwhelmingly positive. The problem was, even when critics liked it, the public in the fall of 1988, who didn't live in New York City proper or in LA, they had no way of seeing it. So you had people in the Christian Science Monitor, the LA Times, they were recommending the picture and no one could go. Vincent Canby, that old grand dame of the New York Times, not shockingly, was dismissive with his assessment, calling it a politically aware action film seeing it as a cross between the Lost Patrol and a liberal-leaning Rambo. He was rather dismissive of its bona fides, and he commented that it looked like an old B-picture that would be made in the Hollywood scene about 50 years prior. Dave Kerr, though, of the Chicago Tribune, gave it some love, noting it was an uncommercial movie, but it did question the viability of a film that was being made during the Reagan era, where the Russians in the picture could queerly be seen as an allegory to the United States' own military mistakes in Vietnam just a decade prior. All that said, I need to tell you, it's very unfair to say that the beast itself is a commercial flop, because it wasn't given a proper chance to have success like other films released at the same time were. By the end of its own theatrical run, it had only earned a little over $160,000 against its $8 million budget. But again, put it in context, it was only being shown in two theaters nationwide. The film quickly faded from public consciousness and became a video ghost, haunting deep cable at odd hours of the night and having the occasional copy crop up in a mom-and-pop video store. Now, for his part, director Reynolds would come back and reflect on the film as a good lesson as to what he needed to look at when he was starting out. As he stated in a 2008 interview with then-Den of Geeks Simon Brew, my first pictures, Fandango and The Beast, they weren't financially successful, which was hurtful at the time, but I feel the pictures themselves worked. They're very much a reflection of what I wanted to accomplish, and there was a lesson early on that I learned, oddly, that a lot of times the business has small pictures that are rarely seen, they're the ones that you're happier with. And sometimes the bigger ones, they're the ones you ultimately have less control over. Now, as one who's seen some of his earlier films, I can tell you, in my opinion, this is some of Reynolds' finest work on display. Likewise, author Mostra Simone believed that The Beast is still the best work of his career, and he hopes that as time continues to march on, it will get more of its well-deserved due one of these days. Not as all lost, though, because The Beast has indeed survived to become a cult film. It remains a secret handshake for those in the know that want to experience a bit of interesting take on the first Soviet-Afghan war. 
and it finds itself suddenly getting a little bit of an extra resurgence as the American popular consciousness, due to the now-just-ended American war in Afghanistan, draws to a close. And, well, frankly, it's because the film has become a beloved classic within Afghanistan itself. As playwright Mostra Simone likes to joke, I'm really big in Kabul. You see, the film has been adopted as a celebratory feature. It gets screened on April 20th as a way to commemorate the day that the Russians withdrew their forces from the country, which signals a positive message to the resilience of the Afghan people in the face of invaders. Director Roger Avery has opined on Letterboxd that he was one of the lucky few who got to sit down along with former writing partner Quentin Tarantino and got to see the film when it was first released in L.A. in 88 so many years ago. He has since gone on to say that this, in his opinion, was one of the best movies of 1998, and he has included it on his personal list of 20 Desert Island films. Look, for my part, I'm not going to tell you that The Beast is going to change your life but it's an insanely intelligent way to look at a very ugly conflict that has many different people involved, and it lets one understand that there aren't really any winners when you go to war like this. Or, if you do have a winner, they're not going to be one of the people that were on the field of battle. As Dave Mason so softly crooned in the 70s, there ain't no good guys, there ain't no bad guys. There's just you and me and we just disagree. Now that being said, I think The Beast is a gem of a film, and I do think it needs to be seen by more folks, especially now that Afghanistan is such a hot topic issue, and again, following the close of another war and experiencing yet another regime change. Go see it. The version of The Beast screened here at the LSCE was the 2017 DVD release put out by Mill Creek Entertainment, and that comes to you rather bare bones. Options include play and on-off for subtitles, so this is really a movie of quality. But you're getting a deal here, as it's a disc that sells for $7.99 on Amazon.com. Now, to date, there hasn't been a Blu-ray release for The Beast, but as time rolls on and more people see it, hopefully a really great company, for example, Kino Lorber, can come along and snap up the rights and put out a really nice version, as they're known to do. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you get your movies. We just think in this day and age, it's important to keep supporting physical media, so that the fine companies that own the rights to these titles are going to keep releasing content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what's important? Getting more of what you know and love? Besides, The Beast is a fantastic movie, loaded with drama, poignant with subtext and allegory, so you would have to be a rather milquetoast individual not to be intrigued. So to that I say, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of The Beast today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Nick for suggesting that we cover this marvelous film. Next week, we're going to take in another strange offering, Megaforce. So if you're looking for a light little film about some heroes who tool around on rocket bikes, garbed in some gold lame and spandex, all while fighting some terrorists, that's going to be right up your alley. If you like what we're doing here, and that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, like us, or hey, do that wherever you're listening to us on. You want to leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. I'm proud to announce that we've been added to Amazon Music, so if you have an account, please say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. 
We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists that we're a part of to give us a old boost in the old rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms and it makes us more searchable. And then we can share these fine films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? <laughs> of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable or wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there, everybody. Wash your hands, wear a mask, stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, all. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.